open your Bible with me to the book of Philippians this morning. Um, we're going to walk through some more of the, of the book of Philippians, and hopefully uh, would be a challenge to you today. Um, so what was your greatest fear? Well, I put a couple fears up on the screen here for you. I know those are probably some of the most common answers that, that we have. We have the spiders, the snakes, the sharks, and the birds. Oh, yes, I do need to take care of that. So we need to be aware that there are a lot of fears. Like, for instance, here's a fear that sometime I will charge into my sermon and forget to collect the offering. Now, that would be a pretty big fear, would it not, Pastor Billy? Okay, so that would not be a good thing. So I'm getting some notice from people, hey, we didn't do that. So we're going to, we're going to. Before we do that, though, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, thank you for the way you bless us. Lord, you, uh, you work in our lives. Thank you for the offer we're about to receive, Lord. I pray, Lord, you would use it to further what you desire to do in our community, in our church. And uh, we thank you, Lord, for the jobs you give us, for the provision you bring our way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Men would come and take care of our offering and appreciate it. So my fear when I was a youngster, like fifth grade, might surprise you, But I was afraid of public speaking. I kid you not. That was my biggest fear. And even more than a fear of public speaking was being publicly embarrassed. And if those of you who know me know the things that I have like done in front of groups, that might surprise you to know that's true. I remember in 5th, 6th, 7th grade, you know, why did these teachers make you go up front and do these oral reports? Do you remember those things? They were horrible. And I would go up front, and Mr. Shapiro would have me come up front, and I'd go up there in front of the paper, in front of the group, and I'd be holding this piece of paper, and I'd try to hold it in front of my face, because the real issue was this. My face, and it can even happen now, I'm giving away my secret, it can even happen now. My face would turn blood red when I was embarrassed. I mean, it would just glow, and all the jerk kids would all laugh. Ah, look at Nicky McDonald, his face is so red. Oh, I hated that. Hated that. So my fear was getting in front of people. It really was. And you know, the way the Lord worked, I mean, just, just kind of interesting how it all happens, you know. Um, I guess I've overcome that fear somewhat. Although I do still get a little nervous when I walk up here. Afraid I'm going to fall down. I'm going to trip over this speaker. I'm going to stand up. I'm going to turn around. My face is going to be blood red. And you're all going to say, look at Pastor Lowell's face is so blood red. Hopefully you won't do that. Can I tell you what I find Man, people have all kinds of fears. Like I said, the things up on the screen. But as I've been thinking about fears and, and how we're going to address that a little bit today, I think the greatest fear that I hear in people's hearts is a fear of a loss of happiness. Now let this sink in for a minute. I think many of us walk through our life scared out of our minds that we're not going to have happiness. And we make a lot of bad choices because we're afraid that we're not going to be happy. We overspend our budget. We indulge our children. We put things inside of us that we never should. We overeat. We overdo everything all for a fear because of a fear that we're not going to be happy. We do, some of us, at times, myself included, do a horrible job raising our children even. Why? 
because we're afraid they're not going to be happy. Happiness. What is this thing? We've talked about it of late, have we not? Every time we got together the last few weeks, we've talked about happiness and what it is. And what, how does it compare to this biblical concept of joy? Happiness relates to your circumstances. You might even say it's almost like just bum luck, you know? I got lucky, so I'm happy. And a lot of us now, we grope around in our lives. And we are doing everything we can to try to find this unfindable thing called happiness. And the truth is, it's robbing us of our joy. Now, many of you know I have spent a lot of years as a math teacher, so I've got a math equation that I want to put up on the screen. Okay, now just relax, you'll be able to understand it. Here's what it is. I find that a fear of the loss of happiness, the fear of a loss of happiness... You put that together with the rejection of God's wisdom and you will have a joyless existence. You reject what God has said. You reject what the Lord has said to us about what is joy and where we find it. You neglect or reject it. So you don't don't pursue it in God's word and when you find it, you reject it. You take that And what all of us walk around with, a fear of the loss of happiness, you jam those things together, and you know what you get? Joyless. Joyless. We're going to see that, I believe, in God's Word today. And you're already there, but but go to Philippians chapter 1, and let's read what, what this man, filled with joy, had to write as God's Spirit led him, and it applies for us today. I'm in Philippians chapter 1. I'm going to start reading in the middle of verse 18 and read down to the end of the chapter. Read what Paul says. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. This is him in prison, him partnering with this church, him asking for their prayer. This will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So let's just go ahead and fast forward to the greatest fear that man has, death. I mean, that's it, isn't it? That's the ultimate fear. Death. And Paul's going to go here. Paul's going there. Let's talk about death. As he's in prison, he doesn't know that he's going to get out. Now, we know now, 2,000 years later, he is released from prison, but he'll come back again. And that time, he will die with the executioner's sword. He goes to death here. Now, what is he doing? I think what he's doing is, he's, he's just being honest, but he's also practicing something that I do a lot. A lot of times when I face a fear, an unknown, I go ahead and process through, okay, what's the worst case scenario? What's the worst case scenario? I'll think through that. Worst case scenario. What's the worst thing that could happen? I'm walking up on stage, okay? I don't want to fall in front of everybody. What's the worst thing that could happen? Well, I guess I could trip, fall down here, and turn on you all could laugh at me. I could survive that. Okay, I can press on. That's what Paul's doing here. Let's consider the worst thing that can happen so we can press on. 
Back to the passage. Here comes verse 21. Listen, you need to know verse 21. You need to live verse 21. You need to have verse 21 underlined, highlighted, circled, written down, put on your wall of your house. Listen to what Paul says. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Did you hear that? Not frightened by anything from your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Where does our confidence come from? We said that joy is a, it's a hope-filled confidence. It, joy means that no matter what comes my way, I know that God has a greater plan. I know that God can see the wide lens and can see the plan that He's working in my life and in His creation. I know that 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 is true. I'm confident that that is true. So I have no fear. It's what Paul's calling us to. You know, this week, I mean, the unthinkable happened. Am I right? A madman walks into a school And all the reports seem to indicate that he barged into a room and walked up to individuals and asked them, are you a Christian? And if yes, he shot them in the head. And if no, he shot, he wounded them in the leg. This is unthinkable, is it not? This is not something that we could even fathom happening in our cushy little worlds. But we need to understand this great truth. Understand this truth today. There are believers in Jesus Christ right now across our planet who are suffering and being persecuted and giving up their life because of Jesus. And folks, it will happen again. It will happen again. So how can we live without fear? How can we have joy? How can we have confidence? Well, I'll tell you the little secret. It's this one right here. Put it up on the screen for me, would you please? There it is. To live 
It's Christ. Not, did I miss it? Yeah. There it is in verse number 21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let's walk through this and understand what Paul is saying, okay? He's calling us to joy, and this joy, it, it resides in his confidence. And I want to start out in verses 19 through 26, and I want us to see that Paul is confident that Christ will work. That Christ will work. Look at the words in verses 19 that Paul says. Look at some of these words. He says, I know. He mentions the help. He mentions the spirit of Jesus. He mentions deliverance. He mentions eager expectation. He mentions hope. He mentions, I will not be ashamed. He mentions being full of courage. Paul is confident. And what he's confident of, he's confident that no matter what, no matter what, in life, Christ will work. He will work. Now, I want us to see where where his confidence is comes from. But before I do that, I want you to, I want to dive in a little bit. I want to drill down a little bit so you can see the level of his confidence. Verse number 19. Paul says, I know that your prayers are going to be there for me. This word know is interesting. It is a, it is a very confident truth. This is not a hope so. It's not a wish so. This is a, a very, it's a very firm stance that Paul takes. It's the same word that, that is in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, when the writer John says, I write you these things that you may know that you have eternal life. You know, you can know today without a shadow of doubt that you have eternal life. And that when you exit this life, you will be with Christ in heaven forever. You can know that. 1 John 5, 13. Same word here. Same word. Drilling down a little bit further, he says... What he says is he knows that their prayers with the help of the Spirit of Christ will turn out for his deliverance. For his deliverance. Now, that's an interesting word. It's the word soteria. Now, some of you will recognize that is the the root word of another word that is called soteriology. Okay. Soteriology is the word, in English, salvation. So Paul says here, I know that all this, and I'll tell you what all this is in just a minute, is going to work out for my salvation, is what he says here. Now, as the question comes up, what's Paul saying? What's Paul saying? Is he saying, I know I'm going to be released from prison? Remember, Paul is in prison when he writes this. And so is he saying, I'm going to be delivered from prison, I just know it. Is he saying, I know that that I'm not going to die. I know that. Or is he saying to me a third choice, I know that when I do die, I'll go to heaven. Do you you see the dilemma that we have here with this word? What Paul is saying? And the truth is, we don't know which one he means. But can I tell you that he knows. Listen, he doesn't know what the plan of God is. But he knows There is a plan. That is a very important truth for all of us to understand. He doesn't know what the plan is. Paul seems to indicate that he recognizes he very well may give up his life. He doesn't think so, but he might. So he doesn't know what the plan is, but by golly, he knows there is a plan. I look at it this way. 
Now, 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 follow with me, okay? You see, God has an ability that you and I don't have. I guess that's a strange thing for me to say. God has many abilities that we don't have, but let me just sort of point at one, okay? Here's what God can do. God can look at your life with what you're going through right now. You know the thing that's burdening you? God can look at that with a very small lens, okay? Like a microscope. He can look at the details of that thing in your life. And he can hurt for you. He can weep with you. He can come alongside in those very small, intimate places of your heart and encourage you because he can feel that pain. And you know what? Some of us can do that. Some of you are great at that. There are some of you that if I ever get really, really sick, I'm calling you. And I want you to come to my house. And I want you to sit next to me. And I want you to get right here because you can do it. You can get right in that pain with people. But that's not the only thing God can do. Not only can God look at things with a small lens, God can step way back with the broad lens. At the same time, God can see how all this is working out in his plan. He can see both those things at the same time. He can see close and he can see far. And he can see how your struggle, how your child's struggle, how your heartache is weaving together his grand plan and what God is doing. And some of you can do that. Some of you can do that. Some of you can come alongside somebody that's really struggling and say, listen, you need to know God has a bigger plan in mind and you can speak that truth into other people's lives. And you know what? You need to do that. But the amazing part of God, the amazing one of the many, the infinite truths about God, he can do both. He does both. And so Paul here is in prison and he's confident that this thing's going to turn out for his deliverance whether it's small and he's going to get out of jail, or whether it requires the large view and he's going to die. He knows that God has a plan. And in that truth, in that knowing, you will find joy. You will find joy. And oh, I want you to have it. I want me to have it. I want us to have what God intends for us to have. I can't promise you happiness. If I try to, call me a liar and chase me out of here, because that's a lie. And there are many people out in other places who are promising that right now, and they're lying. I cannot promise you happiness. Some of us are going to have horrible things happen to us in our lives. There are people who are going to get sick. They're going to have a torment. They're going to die a painful death. It's going to happen to some of us. But our joy is not dependent upon that. And I believe that of the nine, maybe ten people who lost their life for simply saying, yes, I'm a Christian. I believe that certainly some of them truly are believers in Jesus. And my, they're filled with joy. Christ will work. Can I just point out just a few things where he says that that brings this confidence in, in how Christ will work? Notice what it says in verse 19. Through your prayers... You see the, do you see the body here? 
through your prayers. One of the things that Paul is pointing to is the, the support of the body of Christ. Paul is separated from them by hundreds of miles. And they are praying for him, and that means something to him. It means a lot. It means a lot when you pray for another believer. Now, it doesn't mean a thing if you say you're going to pray for him and you don't. That doesn't mean anything, okay? But when you pray for another believer, it means a lot. And Paul here, this is part of the confidence that he has because he knows that they are praying for him. Secondly, he says in verse number 19, the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. This is another, and I would say maybe the chief source of confidence that he has, that the Spirit of God is working. Let me just tell you about the Spirit of God. Just a few things quickly, okay? The Spirit of God is called our helper in John chapter 16. Jesus himself said, it is to your advantage. Listen to what Jesus said. It is to your advantage that I leave, Jesus said. (coughs) That the helper will come to you, and the helper there is the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God comes and fills believers who walk in obedience to him. He comes and fills them, Ephesians 5.18. He comes and controls them, is what that filling means. The Spirit of God Himself, now listen to this. The Spirit of God Himself is a prayer warrior on your behalf. Romans 8 says this, that the Spirit of God intercedes on our behalf with groanings that we can't even understand. There are times that you don't even know what to pray. You ever been there? I've been laying on my bed, burdened over a situation, and I think, I don't even know what to even pray, God. And Romans 8 says that the Spirit of God prays for us. And there's something supernatural there. This is confidence that Paul has. Confidence because of prayer, because of the Spirit of God. He has this confidence Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. The Spirit of God. Okay, let's go ahead and talk about what they have on the screen, though. So, Paul says, in life, in life, I am confident that Christ will work. But the truth is, he recognizes that death could come his way. So, let's talk about that. In death, he's confident that Christ has worked. As he looks at death, he's confident that Christ has worked. Let me me show you what I mean here. In verse number 20, he says, It is my eager expectation, which, by the way, is a very powerful word. Okay? It's a word that that it's a double, it has several, it's several words shoved together that means I know, I know, I know. Okay? His eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body whether by life or by death. Now, Paul here goes on to explain some things that we need to be careful with. We need to be very careful with where Paul goes. Especially in our culture now that is in many ways consumed with death. Especially in our culture today where suicide rates are going off the charts. And I know that many of us in this room have been impacted by suicide of a loved one. I know that. So we need to be careful to fully understand what 
Paul is saying here. Is Paul, is, is, this, is this Paul's declaration that he's longing to kill himself? Is that what this is? Or is he driving at something else? Why don't you come with me and let's understand it. He says, for, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. You see that term there, hard-pressed. Let me tell you about the, that word, what that word picture is. It, what it literally means is to be, it means to be, be closed in on, on both sides by a firm wall, is what it means. I've ever done any hiking, okay? My wife and family and I, we enjoy to go hiking. And, and one of the places that, that you got to, if you, if you enjoy hiking and you ever get the opportunity, you need to go to Sedona, Arizona and do some hiking there, okay? And there's, there's a couple places where you will be hiking almost, I mean, I picture like walking down the aisle here and these huge rocks, these giant cliffs are on both sides. And it's incredible to see. I mean, you're just, you just feel so small, you know? You feel so small standing next to this giant rock structure. And that's the word picture that Paul is drawing here. He says, I am hard-pressed between two equally truths, true truths, that is. Hard-pressed between them. And it goes on to explain what they are. One, say on the left side, is death. And he says... That for him to die is what? It's gain. It's gain. He knows that when he leaves this earth, he will be with Christ. And, and you need to understand very clearly, he does not speak of the perks of Christ. He doesn't, he doesn't speak of, I'm going to go to heaven, there's going to be no crying. I'm going to go to heaven where there's, you know, no darkness. I'm going to go to heaven where there's no sun. And there's lots of gold streets. That's not where he goes. He says, I want to be with Christ. You see, he can say that because he knows Christ. Philippians chapter 3. And so heaven is wonderful for Paul because Jesus is there. That's left-hand side. Hard pressed now between the two. On the other hand, on the right-hand side, is him staying. Now look at it. He says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Fruitful labor. You know what comes to my mind? Ephesians 2.10. That we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And see, he knows on the right-hand side is him staying here on the earth. And that will result in him being used of God. And there's nothing greater that he can ever imagine than being used of the Lord. It's an awesome thing. He says in verse 23, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desires depart to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary to your account. You see, Paul presses on. Even as he thinks about death, he knows that there is gain because Christ is there. For him to live is Christ. For him to die is gain. Now, we need to understand what this means for us. So I want to do something here. I want to, I want to walk you through something and, and um, 
I might be stealing some of Pastor Brock's focus group coming soon, but go ahead and flash forward one more screen, I think. Yeah. You ever wonder what happens to you after you die? I want to just quickly walk through this, okay? Because it's going to happen to some of us. And I want to show you just, I'm going to be real quick, okay? Personal eschatology. I'm going to go through the doctrine of personal eschatology. What does that mean? What happens to a person after they die? Okay? First of all, let's talk about death, what it is. Now, the Bible speaks of three kinds of death. And death just simply means separation is all it means. You have physical death where your spirit is separated from your body. That's physical death. You have spiritual death. That is where your spirit is separated from God's spirit. And we are all born spiritually dead. We're born alive, but we're born dead. Right? We are born with our body containing our spirit. Actually, our spirit having a body, so they are one. But our, we are born spiritually dead, separated from God. So you have physical death, you have spiritual death, and you have eternal death. Eternal death is being eternally separated from the presence of God. Now you need to know, all people, all people, let me back up, that's not actually true. Not all people are going to die. Not all people are going to die. Some of us are going to be raptured. But all those who die will go through a separation. Okay? We'll put a verse up on the screen. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So that is death. And Paul is talking about that. So what will happen after you die? Well, after you die, next screen, please, you go into what's, what's usually called the intermediate stage, okay? And that's not in your Bible, that word, okay? It's not in your Bible, but here's what that is. There is a time after you die before you're resurrected, right? I mean, when you, if your mother or grandmother or father or somebody die, where are they now? Are they asleep in the ground? Where are they? Let's put a, screen up, let's put a verse up on the screen. Paul said this, yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and be at home with the Lord. You need to know that when a believer dies, they're instantly in the presence of God. Instantly. You are with the Lord. You don't have to fear death. When, we set, when our spirit leaves our body, if we are in Christ, we're in the presence with God, the presence of God. Now, what will come next is the resurrection. Next screen, please. The resurrection will occur. John 5, 29 is up on the screen now. And here's what it says. Do not marvel at this, Jesus says, for an hour has come when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So here's what we got. Death, intermediate stage, resurrection, all people. So if you're a believer today, when you die, you will be with the Lord. Your spirit is with the Lord. But you know a body is coming. The body that you have now will be resurrected from the grave. And likewise, let this impact you. See what this passage also says? Those who are not in Christ, they die. They are separated from the presence of God. They're in torment. Jesus speaks of torment. Jesus speaks of fire. Jesus speaks of, of, of all these horrible 
the horrible situation, the destruction of those outside of Christ. But they know. The damned know they're going to have a body. And there will come a time when that body in the grave will come alive. And those who are in Christ, the body will go be with their spirit and of a resurrected body and they'll spend eternity with the Lord. And those who are outside of Christ, they will have a resurrected body that will not die, that will not be annihilated, that will continue experiencing the torment of hell. See, this is a serious matter. Death, intermediate stage, resurrection, next, next page, judgment. Judgment. Yes, even you as believers. Now, Romans 8.1 says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1. Write that down and memorize it. Okay? There is no condemnation. I said it too fast. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord. Yes? Very true. But even we as believers, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I think I have it on the screen. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. All of us. All of us as believers. So here we have death, intermediate stage, resurrection, judgment, and finally, eternal state. And this is what Paul was speaking of. One more slide, please. And it says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And he who was seated on the throne said, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Now why am I taking all the time to go through that? I want us to understand why Paul could say what he did in verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. You don't have to fear death. Because Jesus will bring us through it to be with Him. Now, I, wanna, I do want to deal with the question that I brought up, though. Okay, Let's just, let's just walk through this and, and catch where I, where I took you. I'm hard-pressed from the two, he says. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So let's just deal with this question that I know comes in people's minds, that I suspect has come in people's minds right here in the room, maybe even this week. So is Paul just saying, just take your life? Is he saying, just kill yourself? Is that what he's saying? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. You see here, Paul is not allowing himself to go there because he's living out what Philippians 2 says. Look right over Philippians chapter 2, verse number 3. Do nothing, he says, from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Why does Paul not just take his life? The reason is, the Spirit of God is in him. And the Spirit of God is saying to him, it's not about you, Paul. 
You're here as a little Christ. And you invest your life into other people, not your selfish ambition. You know, it's funny. Just till recently, a person would take their life and we would say, wow, it's so selfish. And those of us who have experienced that pain understand exactly what that meant. We understood exactly what that meant. It's funny, a few years ago, about the time Robin Williams took his life, all of a, all of a sudden it kind of became, I don't know, inappropriate to say that suicide was a selfish act. But I'm telling you the reason why Paul, what Paul was saying, the reason why he pressed on, pressed on and lived because was because he was not driven by his selfish ambition. If you are battling with that, because it's a, it, is, it is growing and growing in our culture, if you're battling against that thought, I'd love to talk to you about it. But what I really would love to do is send you to Christ. And let the Spirit of God change your heart to understand that we, don't long, we no longer live for ourselves. We live for our Master. And so we can be confident and filled with joy and face the worst enemy you can imagine with confidence and with joy. Convinced of this, 25, Paul, he comes to his conclusion. Here it is. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and your joy in the faith so that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul had great joy in living, in life, that is, in death. And he closes out here the remainder of the chapter. I'm, not, I'm going to save some up for next week. Really in living and knowing that Christ has and is working. Now I want to challenge you with one more thing before I wrap up. I think i got one more slide to put up there, don't I? Yeah. You see, here's where a lot of us go wrong, and this is, this is where, we, where we mess up our thinking. Just stay with me for a minute. This is what verse 21 says, okay? I want you to read it with me. Ready? To live is Christ, to die is gain. I think a lot of Christians struggle for joy because they have this verse all twisted around in their brain. And what many believers live is this. To live is gain. And to die is Christ. Look at it now. Many of us live. To live is gain. Gain for me. Gain, gain. And to die, when I die someday, well, that's when I'll get, that's when I'll get serious about Jesus. You got it all turned around backwards, folks. You got it all turned around backwards, if that's what you're thinking. To live is Christ. Here's what Paul is saying I am the servant of Christ. He is my master. He can tell me to go, and I go. He can tell me to talk, and I talk. He can tell me to face a fear I have, and I face it. I'm his servant, I'm his slave. He is my master. So for me to live, is Christ. Anything he calls me to, I do. I open the book, he tells me to do it, I do it. 
I pray to God's Spirit. I open the book. He tells me to do it. I do it. I don't question. To live is Christ. And to die someday, well, that'll be gain. But until then, I keep living Christ. But so many of us run around. And all we're living for is gain. To live for gain, live and gain, live and gain, live and gain. And someday when I die, well, then I'll be worried about Jesus. That is a joyless road. It's a joyless road. Please, I urge you, turn back. You turn. Come back. To live is Christ. To die is gain.